following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up to James chapter 4. And while you're turning, by way of just sort of getting started here, one of the most common problems that prevents us from having what James has been talking about throughout this letter, a a journey into faith that works, is our tendency towards conflict. A faith that works is all about right relationships with one another and obviously with God. The truth is, though, we are familiar, however, (laughs) all too familiar And this is how I'll refer to it as relational battles. How's that for a term? Relational battles. Some of us have been in conflict with someone in the last past year, some for the last months, maybe some for the last week, maybe even someone on the way to church today. (laughs) As we've seen James is not interested in how we talk, right? He is interested in how straight we walk. That's what this letter is all about. And after firmly establishing this in chapters 1 and 2 and stating in chapter 3 that even though what we say does not eclipse what we do, even though our words still do make an impact. Remember Jesus' words from Matthew 12, verse 34, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So here in chapter 4, we'll see James deal head on with the issues of the heart. He has been throughout this letter, and he's really going to hit it head on this morning in chapter 4. Can we just be honest and admit that most of the time we're not real keen on the idea of relinquishing control over to God. There's just a little bit of a ring, I think, here. We can maybe eliminate that. Wouldn't that be true? Most of the time, not real keen on that idea. And because of that, contention exists between us and God. Because of that. And because of that, there is a contention that exists with one another. Do you see how they are tied together? Because we end up in a conflict with God with regards to who's going to be in control of our lives, we end up in conflict with one another. Fighting seems to come naturally to most people. Why? Because we're each born with a scrappy sin nature (laughs) that prefers fighting rather than switching. Remember that old, those of you who are old enough, there was a a cigarette commercial (laughs) way back. (laughs) Someone told me. We prefer going for the juggler rather than yielding to another. Of course, it all started back in the garden, right? After the fall, 
And the very first fight that is recorded in Scripture is between Cain and Abel, and we know how that turned out, don't we? Murder. And since then, we can chart history easily by its conflicts and its wars. It's not surprising then that James addresses the problem of conflicts among Christians here in this fourth chapter. It was the same 2,000 years ago as it is today. Remember, like all the biblical writers, James did not write this letter giving it chapters and verse numbers. Those came later for our convenience. Could you imagine if I would have said, okay, let's turn to that part in the Bible where they're talking about conflicts. And you'd be looking, and I'd be done with the sermon, and you'd still be looking. So we're glad that it's been broke down for us, right, in chapter and verses. Now, I'm saying that because, you see, there is naturally, originally, there was no break between chapter 3, verse 18, and chapter 4, verse 1. It is a continuation, all right? The fourth chapter continues to develop the content that was in chapter 3. In fact, the initial comments that James made regarding the destructive nature of the tongue in chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, build and reaches its peak in the beginning of chapter 4 as he deals with open conflicts amongst believers, further unpacking the effects of bitter envy and selfish ambition seen in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 3. So in this fourth chapter, James lays out the reasons for the fighting that was occurring in the faith community as well as their tragic results. But he doesn't leave us without any solutions on how to deal with the conflicts. Aren't you thankful for that? We're not just hung out there with conflict. He gives a solution to the conflict that have taken their toll within the ranks of God's people. So he first of all discusses in verse 1 the cause of conflict, which follow with me as I read that verse. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, we would expect that the world, with its back to God, empty of his word, void of his spirit, would be characterized by fighting. We would say, well, yeah, of course. We see it all the time, right? In business, people fight. In, in, in politics, religion, education, sports. Sadly, however, believers also fight in church. And this is the specific arena of conflict James has in mind in this first part of verse 1. You see, throughout his letter, he's addressing, as we've said before, the Jewish Christian community, those who had turned from Judaism to Christianity, those who had recognized that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He's, that's who he's been talking to. So this section reveals that they are obviously having problems getting along with each other. Now notice with me that the plural form of both words indicates the conflicts were not isolated one-time incidents, but were chronic and were ongoing. James doesn't tell us specifically what the disputes were all about, but we can tell by the context and the content of this passage, 
and the verses that follow that they involve struggles very likely with regards to worldly affairs, worldly desires, and maybe even somehow financial gain in their approach to that. The Greek word that is translated desires is a word from which we get our English word. Are you ready for this? Hedonism. Interesting. Hedonism, the philosophy that the chief purpose of living is to satisfy self. Jesus used that very same word when he was giving the parable of the sower. His, this is what he said. It is that those desires that choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and so therefore do not grow, do not mature. That's found in Luke 8. Uh, chapter 8, verse 14. So this word pleasures describes any personal goal, described any personal goal such as money, reputation, or success, which ends up contributing to personal accomplishment rather than having interest in God's will. Please notice that verse 1 in verse 1, I like this, James completely blows out of the water the whole blame game deals with it right here in verse 1. Notice that the scripture does not say, you know, that which is in them. <laughs> no, he doesn't say that they come from desires that battle in others. He says that battle within you. We cannot blame, not even Satan. We can't blame our neighbor. We can't blame anybody. We can't go out there and say, you know, if, if, if someone just would behave and, 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 and not act up, I wouldn't get mad. We can't say, if they would stop making me mad, I wouldn't get mad. We, we can't do that. <laughs> Doesn't work. When something or someone steps in the way of fulfilling our desires, our tendency is to fight until... We get our way. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Satan may have a field day with it. Unbelievers might be pleased to see us going at it. But no one is to blame but ourselves. Amen. Look at verse 2 and 3 with me now. James says, you, you desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your very own pleasures. Now, most scholars agree that James was not likely accusing his, his readers, his first century readers, of actual murder and killing one another. Although that may have been a, you know, a, an extreme case that may have happened, but typically, generally speaking, that's probably not what he's saying. What he is doing, I think, is showing them that fights and quarrels were just as wrong as far as God was concerned as killing. Remember what Jesus told us, tells us in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. This is what Jesus says. This is his thought on it. This is heaven's perspective. 
You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, Jesus speaking, but I tell you that every, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister is subject to judgment. In other words, if you even harbor anger within towards someone, walking around with ill feelings towards someone, Jesus is letting us know it is no better. At the conclusion of verse 2, James shares the eye-opening truth that his readers lacked what they wanted because they failed to ask God. The reason for that was the same as it is for us. couple I want to share, our, our pride and our ego being one, right? I don't need to ask God. I got this. I can handle it. Someone has very wisely said that ego, you know, those letters in the word ego, E-G-O, is an acronym for edging God out. <laughs> I like that. I think another reason we don't ask God is because we know what the answer is. <laughs> in other words, we know that what we're wanting or really needing, or think we need but want, really isn't what we do need and that he isn't going to want to give it to us anyway. I remember when I was a kid, there was a, there was a kid in the neighborhood that when we wanted to go do something, maybe that required going off somewhere, he would have to go ask you know, like we would all have to go ask mom and dad if it was okay if we went and did such and such. But this kid had a crazy way of asking for permission. He would go in there and say, you probably won't let me go, will you, too? And then he would say. And I would think to myself, why would you ask like that? <laughs> you need to sell it a little better than that, right? We do that. I think that's why we don't ask God as well, because we already know that in our hearts, Probably not good for us anyway. Maybe some of you have said, well, I do pray. I do ask. But I don't get what I've been asking for. James tells us because you're asking with wrong motives. Church prayer is not giving orders to God. Prayer is reporting for duty. Amen? And once a person finally understands that prayer is not saying, bless the business, bring in the money, solve the problem, and God's saying, aye, aye, captain. <laughs> One's prayer life will be revolutionized. God's promise of answering our prayers and giving us what we ask for must be at all times governed by all the Bible's teachings with regards to prayer. Please know, and I think most of you are aware of this, this isn't a name it and claim it kind of deal. It is not a blab it and grab it kind of theology. The Apostle John helps balance our perspective with regards to prayer. Listen to what he writes. And we will receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him. 
1 John 3.22. And he also says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 1 John 5.14. Prayer is saying, Father, what do you want to do with my life? I yield to you to do what you see is best in and through my life. I'm yours. Bought and paid for with the price. Amen? On that cross. And the reason for this is because, God, I get all mixed up too easily. The reason is, God, because I have a hard time keeping myself out of the way. <laughs> James warns against pleasure-motivated prayer, and John encourages God-pleasing prayer. Spiritually-minded followers of Christ pray for things that are pleasing in God's sight, not for things that fuel their own selfish desires. Now, notice what James shows us next. He deals with the consequences of conflict. We see in, in verse 4, and he's like, okay, the gloves are off. We're going for it. You adulterous people. Whew. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James is all about telling the truth in love, even if it means using some tough, straight talk. You adulterous people, he says. I'll guarantee you that grabbed their attention. If they were kind of sleeping through whatever the letter was at this point, that, that got them woke up. They're listening. Why are some of these his readers being called adulterers because they're cheating on God their attention their affection and allegiance are not towards God and their fellow brothers and sisters but toward themselves and the world because the father looks at the world system and he sees the corruption and the danger, the problematic pride and selfishness, and he's kind of basically letting us know, if we continue to reach for the trinkets of the world instead of him, primarily, you know, first, then we will find ourselves at odds with God. God only calls people adulterers if they're supposed to be faithful to him. In other words, the lost, those who do not know Jesus, never have, are not adulterers. They're lost. But only those who've been called into him and have received salvation and go down another path, those are the ones who are the adulterers. But the safe person who cozies up with the world, looking to it for that which only God can provide, is committing spiritual adultery. Listen to me. Because they're trying to love God and have an affair 
with the world. I have people tell me when they're talking about maybe they're, they're, they're attempting to defend the lifestyle of someone that they might be close to and they will say, but, but they love Jesus as if that excuses all sinfulness. Hear me, let me say it again. Those are those, you know, who are saying that they love God, but yet at the same time maintaining an affair with the world. Let me ask you a question, married people. Would you tolerate? Do you not expect faithfulness from your spouse? Then why shouldn't God expect the same? Amen? Ultimately, this worldliness causes quarrels and conflicts. It comes when we try to entertain rather than discipline. It surfaces when we replace unchanging truth with cultural fads or turn a relationship with Jesus Christ just into another world religion. Those moves split churches, destroy ministries, just as adultery can split a husband and wife destroying a family. As Christians, we must choose to live either by the worldview or the word view. Either by this culture or by Jesus Christ. The choice is ours. Verse 5. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Verse 5 is, has always been notoriously difficult to translate and interpret. One scholar, in fact, calls it one of the most difficult verses in the entire whole New Testament. The reason is because the words James uses for jealously and longs, or that word could also be in some of your translations, desires, can both have either a positive or a negative connotation. Also, the word spirit that he uses here is the Greek word pneuma, and it can refer to both human spirit as well as Holy Spirit. So what is James saying? I believe the overall context of this passage helps us clear up the confusion. Remember that we just saw in verse 4, James accuses believers of spiritual adultery. Those who cheat on God and his ways in favor of the world and their own ways and the world's ways. Then James follows that up with God's response to believers' unfaithfulness. We might then render this phrase in verse 5 here is the spirit that dwells in us is longing jealously. Therefore, letting us know that James is referring to the Holy Spirit and not the human spirit. God is jealously longing for his people's faithfulness to him. We see this 
graphically portrayed in the book of Hosea. And some of you know what that book is about, where God's relationship to Israel is illustrated by the prophet's relationship to his prostitute wife, Gomer. This background fits the image of God as a husband who is justly jealous for the faithfulness of his bride, which is the church. So James is referring to the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants control of your life by his spirit. And that means relinquishing your control, your letting go over to him. God, you take it. This kind of humble surrender to God's control is the key principle that is described in verse 6. But he gives us more grace. How many are thankful for that? I like the New American Standard Bible with that. It says, but he gives a greater grace. Greater than what? Greater than our stubborn will. <laughs> greater than our selfishness. Greater than our arrogance and our pride and our inability on our own to relinquish control and let go. That's the primary work of the Holy Spirit. It's not easy to turn from the self-centered pride of life kind of living and humble ourselves before God. But when we do, James lets us know that when we do, we will find a storehouse an abundant, overflowing storehouse of his grace for us. So far, James has shown us that our frustrated pursuit of pleasure is the cause of our bent to fight because of our you know, struggle to relinquish to God. And God's spirit of grace is the solution. James now spells out the way we apply all of that to our lives and then come on to the cure for conflict, and we see that in verses 7 through 10. It says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. And then listen to what he says. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Someone has said, the way up is down. <laughs> In humility. I like that, don't you? You see, initially, we must submit to God. This is a command, please notice, not suggesting. It's a command. Don't fight. Don't resist. Don't push back. Instead, surrender. Submit. Relinquish. Yes, I know it goes against the grain of our natural tendency toward sin and our natural tendency to, tendency to fight. But God, James says, gives us grace that we might be able to do it. 
Just say, simply just say to the Lord, Lord, I give up. I defer to you. Here's the steering wheel of my life. You take it. I'm tired of running into stuff. Tired of myself getting in the way. Take the wheel of my life. Now notice submitting to God goes hand in hand. Did you notice? Resisting the devil. He's saying the proud pursuit of our own I will looks at a lot like Satan's rebellious conceit. Looks a lot like Satan's rebellious conceit that got him what? Kicked out of heaven. The cause of his downfall. Following the philosophy, in other words, of the world is to follow demonic, worldly wisdom. It is directly opposed to God, directly opposed to following God and his ways. Then James tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? In terms of salvation, we can't draw any nearer to God than what we already are. We have been saved, right? Past tense, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us. All of this describes our eternal position in Christ. But verse 8 is speaking about our daily relationship with God, our experiencing growth, maturity in knowing Him and progressively becoming more and more like his son, Jesus. So then, how do we draw near to God? Well, the rest of verses 8 and 10 provides for us that answer. Wash your hands. In other words, stop doing evil. Purify your hearts. In other words, stop thinking evil. Grieve, mourn, and wail. This is not God saying, I don't want you to be happy. This is God saying, there needs to be true brokenness, real remorse with regards to your actions of sinfulness and wickedness and rebelling against me, having it your way, wanting your way instead of mine. Your adultery, your unfaithfulness to me. Are you broken about that? There's something in your heart that says, oh, my God, help me. I call out to you. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. In other words, don't joke about your lifestyle of wickedness. All these commands reflect the inner thoughts, outward effects of a thing known as repentance. If we have been caught up in some kind of proud rebellion, having turned our backs to God, then drawing near to him means turning our faces, our hearts, opening our hands towards him. He has for us great things, a storehouse of grace. A quote from Truth for, Truth for Life, um, Alistair Begg has said, spiritual maturity can be determined by gauging what we're running from 
and what we're running to. I'm convinced that many people experience unnecessary trouble from the very pit of hell in their homes or trials in their lives because they do not they do not get or understand what James is giving us here. They don't realize that if they just simply resist the enemy, resist the devil, which begins by saying no to our own selfish wants and desires and do the rest of what these verses command us to do, he will indeed, he must flee from us. If we just did what God's word says to do, if we just did what God's word says to do, our lives would be different, gloriously different. The choice is yours. It is a heart issue. Please, please, please choose wisely. Choose Jesus over and above yourself. Amen. Father, we come before you and we just say thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how it, it produces for us light because it is truth and because the truth sets us free. It is your desire that we be people who are free, free from the bondage of sin, free from our own selves, free to just live for you, to choose you, to desire bringing pleasure to you rather than ourselves, to love you more and less this world, to find ourselves, God, so ever faithful to you with no desire to carry on some kind of spiritual adulterous affair with this world. Minister to our hearts, God. Come and do what only you can do by your spirit within us. May we be yielded May we humble ourselves before you and allow you to freely move within our lives. God, we give you the steering wheel. We relinquish control over to you. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.